We're all familiar with the experience of watching the news and seeing a segment of videotape that shows some event or some incident. And it takes, you know, 30 seconds and you, and you see for yourself what happened. <clears throat> and then for the next 30 minutes, different spinmeisters come on the show and tell you how to understand what you saw. And they can spin it any way, well, they want. And they try to spin it the way they want you to believe or what they want you to believe about that experience. And on the political spectrum, you've got spin left, spin right, and in the economic perspective, you've got spin up and spin down, and, and there's just endless uh, possibilities for spinning and putting a, a meaning on events to one's own, you know, demise or satisfaction or chagrin or frustration, disappointment, suffering or not. So, how are we to know, really, what happens? Because you see for yourself... But after listening to half a dozen different spinmeisters, you're not sure anymore. You, you, you can kind of remember what you saw, but you don't really know how, what to believe about it. Right? And so you can, get, you can get pretty confused, unless there's someone that's spinning it the way you'd like to believe, and then you believe them. They must be right. They agree with me. Well... Today, as you have been watching the news of your own mind and body, what have you observed? How do you understand what you have observed in this mind and in this body? You've experienced sensations in the body and thoughts in the mind, emotions in the heart. You've seen sights, smelled smells, tasted, and just had thousands of newsworthy events occurring in your heart and mind. Which spinmeister did you listen to? The one that says, oh poor me, I'm, I'm not doing well, or wow, this is great, I'm happy to be here because X, Y, Z, or hopefully tomorrow will be a better day, there's always the futurists that have got something better to offer. Or, oh my God, this is just like the last time. There's those who are kind of stuck in the past. And, well, you can, you can believe anything about your experience. It's a sign of better things yet to come, or it's a confirmation of the worst is yet to happen. So we, we get a chance to see, when we look, when we just pay attention, as we have today, we get a chance to see our conditioning. We get a chance to see um, and hear the voices of those that have conditioned the way we think. They haven't conditioned our actual experience. You know, this body's got its own laws and it operates the way it does, and but how we think about it, how we think about the experiences of the body and the mind and the heart, we've been taught. And we may have been taught skillfully, or we may have been taught unskillfully, and you can just look at your own understanding of your experience and know for yourself. This is a good way of thinking about my experience. Or this is a pretty crappy way of thinking about my experience. I want to read a comment that Mark Epstein, uh, he's a Buddhist practitioner, psycho, 
therapist or analyst, I'm not sure which, but a psychologist, I'm not sure which, but he's written a lot about uh, the Dharma perspective of psychology or the psychological perspective of the Dharma. I don't know which, but anyway. He says, uh, the Buddhist view, the Buddhist view, the, Buddha, the Buddhist spin on things has consistently demonstrated it is the perspective of the sufferer, the one who suffers, that determines whether a given experience perpetuates suffering or is a vehicle for awakening. It is the perspective of the one who suffers that determines whether a given experience perpetuates suffering or is a vehicle for awakening. He goes on to say, to work something through, to work it through, means to change one's view of the experience. And if we try instead to just change the emotion that we have about it, we may achieve some short-term success, but we remain bound by the forces of attachment and aversion to the very feelings which we're struggling to be free of. Okay. So if it is our own perspective of things that is causing all this suffering rather than using this experience as a, an opportunity to free the mind, to liberate the mind. How do we work it through? How do we change our view of these experiences we had today? We've had these experiences of the body, the mind, and the heart. And if the view that we have of them causes us to feel suffering... We need to work it through. Change our view in order to use this very same experience as an opportunity for liberation. Freedom from suffering rather than suffering. How do we do that? I I don't think I'm far off to say that all of us have experienced some distress today. Some frustration, disappointment, pain, you know, whinging, whining, complaining, you know, oh poor me, self-pity, whatever it is, you know, I want this, I can't have it, and I don't want this and I've got it. This is suffering. This is suffering. And Mark is pointing to this Buddhist view, this Buddhist understanding that if you're suffering with what you experience today, it's because of the view you have of it, the understanding you have of it. We might say the unskillful understanding you have of that particular experience. Well, in all that you've heard of different ways of understanding the mind and the body and all of these experiences, you have also heard the Buddhist view. Most of you have heard, have read, have attended retreats, you've listened to Dharma talks, and you've heard how the Buddha would understand these experiences. Tonight I want to talk about that view because the Buddha's spin on things, if you will, is he would look at experience to determine if it was suffering or not suffering. And if it was suffering, he would look to the cause of that suffering. And if he found the cause, he would then work to change the conditions that gave rise to that cause and thereby change the suffering. Work it through. He would work through the experience to arrive at an understanding that was not one of suffering. Not that he changed the experience. The experience happens due to conditions usually outside of our control. But how we understand the experience really determines whether we suffer or are free of suffering. Okay. What we're doing here in this practice 
is really investigating our experience to discover where we suffer, how we suffer, where we are in pain, where we are distressed, what isn't okay, because it indicates that there's some wrong understanding rampant in our mind that conditions are seeing that experience in that way. Utejaniya capitalized on the Buddha's teaching when he says, the first thing that a yogi, a retreatant, a meditator, one who's developing their mind, needs to do is they need to hear what this Buddhist view is. They need to hear how the Buddha would understand something. And I'm going to call that right view. It means skillful view. It means the view of experience that leads to the end of suffering. An unskillful view of experience leads to suffering. That would be, we say, wrong. Right and wrong sounds kind of... some other religion. but um, So let's say skillful and unskillful. Skillful leads to the end of suffering. Unskillful leads to more suffering. So the, the Utejaniya says that the first thing we need to do when we're going to undertake this practice, this development of the mind, is to, is to at least hear what this skillful view and way of understanding experience is. Not that we can do it, not that we believe it, not that we even have that view now, because we're still suffering. And let me just mention that skillful view or right view in the Buddhist teaching holds a pretty prominent position in the path of practice to be developed to free ones from free oneself from suffering. Right view is first thing. Right view, skillful view upon which we develop skillful thoughts and then we undertake the whole meditative training of uh, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, right livelihood, right speech, right action. Okay, so right view is, is the foundation. This is first thing. When Sariputta, Sariputta was the Buddha's Second, second only to the Buddha in wisdom at the time of the Buddha. So he was asked by a group of monks one time, well, we've heard about this skillful view and we know of its importance in our development of the mind. Uh, how, do we, how do we get it? How do we get this skillful view? How do we train ourselves in skillful view? And Sariputta said, well, there are two elements to right view, to hearing and to establishing this right view. The first is, you actually have to hear it from somebody else. If you don't hear this right view, only a Buddha discovers it for himself and can then teach it to others. Now, that's a little bit of a challenge to we intelligent educated, sophisticated Westerners who our whole education system is all about problem solving. You got a problem, solve it, fix it, get on with life. But the Buddha is saying, you know what? You can't do it. You got to hear the answer from somebody else first and then you can look in that direction and confirm. Let me just, let me just point to how this works in our life. Before uh, was it Galileo? I don't know. Before somebody, you know, the thought was in in primitive cultures and in, in, in the ours too, that the sun revolved around the earth. Because from our perspective, every morning it's over there. During the day it goes over the sky like that, and it sinks down below, and in the morning again it's over here. It's clear. 
it's obvious from our immediate and direct perception that the sun goes around the earth. That's not, I mean, that, that's logical. It's wrong. It takes those who have greater understanding, more sophisticated understanding, of other facts in the universe, to look at the stars and etc., etc., and realize, no, the sun doesn't go around the earth. In fact, it takes a year for the earth to go around the sun. All the while spinning on an axis that gives us the illusion that the earth is going around, that the sun is going around the earth. Now, we have been told this since grade, before, before school probably, you know, that the earth spins around, the sun doesn't go around the earth. We've been told this insistently, consistently, vociferously. We've been tested on it. We all believe it, and none of us would have seen it for ourselves if we hadn't been told. Right? Okay. That's what the Buddha said. If you don't hear it from somebody else, you're not going to find out for yourself. Only, well, an astronomer in this case, but a Buddha in our case, can... Can, can gather all the facts, all the information to arrive at the right way of understanding suffering in the end of suffering. Okay. So, the first is we have to hear it from somebody else. Luckily, the teachings of the Buddha are still available to us. We've all heard plenty, not all of us, but most of us have heard plenty of Dharma talks, uh, read Dharma books or other had other indications of what the right view is so it's nothing new to us but the second element of establishing oneself in this skillful view is you have to pay attention skillfully you have to be wise about paying attention keeping this right view or this skillful view in mind as you pay attention that's what we're doing here practicing skillful attention, wise attention, how to pay attention to the experiences of the body and the mind and the heart in a skillful way, not in a way that, well, you know, you know what it's like out there. We just we pay attention to things in unskillful ways and we generate all kinds of stress or distress or upset or frustration or disappointment, suffering. So here we have another opportunity. Well, let's pay attention to the same thing differently with, with more skillful attention. That's what we're doing. That's what we're training ourselves to do through this practice. One view or one arena of skillful understanding is of the Dhamma. Now, the Dhamma is the teachings of the Buddha. It's also the way things are the way things have come to be. Our immediate experience in any moment, we could say, that's the Dharma. That's the way it is. For now, for me, for now, that's the way things have come to be. It's, it's the truth. It's the truth of that moment. Our true experience is the Dharma. The teachings of the Buddha point to this truth for each one of us to discover for ourselves. Now, it's not that we all have the same truth. Because, you know, we're all sitting in the same room, we're all listening to the same talk, but we all have different experience of what's going on here. So there's many truths of the same thing. Each one of us has our own. But that's the truth. That's the Dharma. That's the way it is for us at that time. We could also say that the Dharma is, because it's the way things are, or the way things have come to be, it is the study of nature. When we look at this unfolding of the mind and the body, what we see is nature on display. You know, when you walk in the forest, you see the way the trees are, and the animals relate to the tree, and the bushes relate to the trees, and the big trees and the little trees, and the water and the rain and the sun, and it makes a forest. It's not accidental. It's not haphazard. It's not random. It's not a mistake. Things happen in the forest due to cause and effect. 
the way of nature. Same with our body and mind. There are causes and conditions giving rise to everything that we experience. And everything that is experienced in this body, in this mind, in this heart, is a display of nature. It's a display of the laws of cause and effect. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens adventitiously. We may not understand all the causes and all the conditions that have come together to give rise to this particular experience, but that's just because we don't see clearly, deeply enough to understand that. But things don't happen randomly. There are causes and conditions, the unfolding of the laws of nature giving rise to the way things are at this time. Within us, between us, amongst us, in the environment, inside, outside, it's all nature on display. What is important to understand in this is that the way the mind behaved today, or you might say the way the mind misbehaved today, is not accidental. It's not random. And if we pay careful enough attention, we will be able to grok it. You know what I mean? Figure it out. We'll be able to understand it. We'll be able to sense all the kind of the legitimacy of it, if you will. We'll be able to get it. One of the things that we see is that this mind is deeply conditioned not only by our immediate experience of the weather, each other, the food we eat, how much sleep we got, but by things that occurred far in the past. How we experience today? Deeply conditioned by what mom and dad told us well, most of us, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Really, not only that, but how we understand it is deeply conditioned by what the Buddha said 2,500 years ago. Oh, okay. So if we're going to try to understand this present moment and how we're relating to it, there's a lot to take into consideration. All that has gone before, all that's going on now, and in fact, all that will go on later. Now, it's pretty easy to see that, you know, what happens before conditions what follows behind. But what happens later conditions what happens now, too. Okay. Spin that one out for me. Well, why did you eat dinner tonight? Or why did you eat lunch? Because you know... If you eat now, that as it is digested later, it will support the continuity of health in the body. What happens later conditions what you do now. That's just a simple... Why are you practicing here? Because, you know, somebody told you to yesterday or a year ago? Well, yes, but also... There's some understanding. We've all seen a little bit. You practice like this, in the future, things are different. You have a little more understanding, a little more patience, a little more, a little less suffering. And so we practice now, knowing full well that the result in the future is conditioning our practicing now. Isn't it? So it's not just the past that conditions the present. The future conditions the present. Okay. We're all human beings. <laughs> right? And as a living being, we are heir to the biological laws of the universe. We are not free of the the, the limitations, the constraints, the commands of the laws of biology. As a biological being, we're born, we die. There's no getting around it. That's just the way it is. And we don't, we don't struggle with that. We're not debating that. We're not trying to disprove it. We, we, we live in alignment with it. We understand that if we live in alignment with that understanding, we suffer less. 
If you try to deny that natural law of biology, you can really suffer. There's the physical laws of the universe that we're also heir to, like gravity. You know, it's like, it's not like, it's not debatable. You know what? You, you don't win if you debate the law of gravity, whether it's true or not, or whether, you have, whether you're affected by it or not. We're all affected by it. To struggle against this natural law, well, is, is the height of foolishness. And yet, so there's the biological laws, there's the physical laws. The Buddha was one who studied nature, the nature of this body and mind. And he discovered additional natural laws governing the unfolding of the mind. Now, it's only because he paid such careful attention for so many years or lifetimes that he was able to discern that. But he was able to articulate how the mind unfolds, how the mind works, how we take sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, all these pixels of phenomena that are kind of floating around and kind of going in through our sense doors and how we create a reality out of it. It's not haphazard. We all agree. We're sitting in a room in this place called Cloud Mountain in the state of Washington in a country called the U.S. in the year 2012 related to what? I don't know, 2012. And we're listening to a Dharma talk. We all agree, right? No, you don't agree. What? Oh, 14, sorry. Okay. Phew, okay. Just, I just check in. <laughs> so, but how, how did that happen? How do we all agree when there's so much going on to make this kind of consensual reality that we live in that we all agree. I mean, the Buddha could see. This is how it works. He understood how the mind puts it all together. And we can understand the mind too, how the mind puts it all together. One of the... Um, hmm. Hmm. Let me just skip this section and go to all of our Dharma practices. Everything that we're doing here, taking the refuges, the precepts, practicing awareness, uh, offering our service to the community to keep the community going, practicing generosity, offering meals. All of these practices are developing skillful, wholesome qualities of mind. Generosity, patience, attention, awareness, understanding, loving kindness, acceptance, letting go, renunciation. And these are all skillful qualities of mind. As they are developed, unskillful qualities of mind are either suppressed or kept at bay so that they don't get a chance to arise in the mind causing more suffering. So whatever we do for Dharma practice or in alignment with the laws of nature, Dharma practice, leads to this understanding of how to suffer less through the development of qualities of the mind. So I want to move on to how to understand our meditation practice. Because there are, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of different meditation practices. There's a lot of different teachers, techniques, traditions. There's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of uh, competing opinions, if you will, or contradictory opinions about what's going on here. So I want to offer several right views or skillful ways of understanding what we're doing here. Now, let me just say, you don't have to believe it. The Buddha said, this is the skillful way of understanding what's going on. This the way that would lead to less suffering. Now, you don't have to believe it, but I would just ask you to listen. 
and check it out for yourself. Before you have a strong opinion, yeah, that's true, or no, that's not, just check it out. Just take the rest of the retreat, just check it out for yourself and see through your own observation whether that is a skillful way of understanding your meditation practice. So the first view, or the first way of understanding, in every moment, something is being known. In every moment, something is being known. Now what this is saying is the mind, this knowing capacity that we all experience, is knowing something in every moment. It's knowing sights, sounds, smells, taste, touch, thoughts, feelings. In fact, that's all it's knowing. Six things. Sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and cognitive, conceptual thoughts, feelings, emotions. The Buddha gave a short discourse. I think it's called the short one. Where he said, this is it. This is all that we're ever going to experience. Sight, smells. We create our entire world, our worldview and all of our experience out of these six things. So actually, when you start meditating, there's not much to pay attention to. Just six things. Right? Just six things. That's it. You're either smelling, tasting, touching. Well, thinking, there's, there's a variety there. But <clears throat> So in every moment, something is being known. Now, wait a minute. You remember when you were trying to be mindful earlier today? And the mind, having a mind of its own, just went off into la-la land, right? And you didn't know it. You didn't know it at the time. And it's off thinking about something, you know, the past, the future, some fantasy, you know. And while it's happening, you don't know anything about it. You don't know that you're sitting. You don't know you're at a retreat. You don't know your name. You don't know that there's people around. You don't know in the room. You don't know anything. You don't know. And yet when you come out of it, or when you become aware again, or when awareness arises, you can just look back and you can see everything you were thinking about. Right? I'm not the only one, right? That, that happens, right? Okay. The mind, it's, it's like the mind, some part of the mind was knowing everything that was going on. But you were unaware of it. Right? So all I'm saying is, in every moment, the mind is knowing something. What we're doing here is not trying to change the something or even improve the knowing. We're just trying to be aware that this is what's happening. That's all. We're just trying to be aware of the fact that in every moment, the mind is knowing something. So we're not cultivating knowing. We're not cultivating objects, what is being known. We're cultivating the awareness, the recognition that this is what is happening. That's what our practice is. Cultivating recognition of this fact that in every moment something's being known. Even if we're not aware of it at the time, still something's being known. The field of meditative awareness is primarily our own body and mind. Yes, we look outside and we see sights, we hear sounds, but as soon as that sight comes in through the eye door, it touches the mind, and we're observing our mind. As soon as the sound comes in through the ear door, it touches the mind, and we're then dealing with our mind. So it's really... Even the external world is just a reflection of our own mind. So the meditative arena, if you will, is our own body and mind. Even when you look at someone else, you think, oh no, I'm looking at them. They're in my field of meditative awareness. As soon as the image goes into your mind, you're dealing with your mind, your mind's perception of that person, or that tree, or that food, or that sound. And so what we're doing in meditation practice is paying attention to our own 
inner workings of the mind, of the heart, of the mind. Now, in the field of meditation, anything, and in fact, everything, can be known. There isn't anything that can't be known. I don't mean you can't answer. I don't mean you can answer every question. I'm just saying that anything can be known. Sight, sound, smell, taste, all concepts, all emotions, all thoughts. Every, every philosophical debate that's ever happened, every religious book that's ever been written, all that can be known. When it is known, we say, that's the object of our attention. The sound is an object of our awareness. The sight is an object of our awareness. The thought is an object of our awareness. The concept is, aware, is an object of our awareness. The object is what we pay attention to. Oh, these are the meditative objects. So when I say, What's, what are you aware of? If you ask yourself, what are you aware of? You're identifying the object of your awareness. Oh, I'm aware of this sound. I'm aware of this sensation. I'm aware of the breath. I'm aware of a thought. I'm aware of a feeling, an emotion, a memory, a plan. These are the objects of meditation. The obvious objects are very distinct sense objects like sounds, sights, sensations in the body. They're pretty tangible. They, they, they're pretty impactful on the mind. They occur in a time, a specific time and a location, usually, in the body. When you talk about thoughts, well, they're a little less tangible. They're a lot quicker. They're a little more ephemeral they're just as noticeable, right? When we talk about emotions, wow, they can be really intense, really obvious. Not always apparent where they occur or even when they occur. They just kind of seep in somehow and then we become aware of them. Or moods or mental states. Where do they come from? When, when do they actually arrive? When does the feeling of impatience actually arrive at the mind. A little hard to... Where does it arrive at? Where does it arrive to? Uh, it's clear that it's there. It's clear that it's in the mind. But it's not as distinct. It's not as tangible. It's not as... But it's still an object to be known. In the sequence of obvious to subtle to, uh, from gross obvious to subtle to very subtle, awareness is on the very subtle end. Huh? Understanding is even more subtle. But understanding can be the object of awareness. Okay. Whatever is known is an object of the mind, object of our awareness. We should understand that meditation is a development of the mind. Anything you do that encourages or enhances or furthers the development of the mind, we could say is part of the meditation process. So when you, when you read in Saito Tejaniya's book about the nature of the mind or about the nature of practice, you're, you're supporting the development of your own mind. Even that is part of the meditative process. When you think about, you know, you sit at the pond, I saw some of you sitting at the pond today, it looked like you were just spacing out. I knew you were thinking about the Dharma, so I knew you weren't just spacing out. You know, and you were reflecting on your experience in a kind of a meditative way. That's, that's also good, good support for the development of the mind. And when, of course, when you practice formal meditation, noticing moment-to-moment -moment experience, that's also development of the mind. So we don't want to just put, you know, sitting quietly with your eyes closed in this posture, counting breaths as, oh, this is meditating. Anything that you do to support the development of the mind, the understanding in the mind, support for the understanding, uh, encouragement for the inspiration for the understanding, inspiration for the practice... All of this is working to develop the mind.
part of the meditative practice process. Sayadaw says, meditation is the work of the mind. Whatever the mind is doing, if it's done with wise attention, intention, attention and intention, then it will lead to the development of the mind. That's meditation. The kind of meditation that we're doing here, mindfulness or awareness, leading to insight or understanding, is dependent on learning to observe experience with interest. Not out of compulsion, not out of, you know, just because just you're told to do it. But you really have to, you have to find this quality of willingness in the mind, in the heart. A real interest, not just a tolerating of experience. Sometimes, you know, when we're tired or when we get frustrated, we'll tolerate experience. But that's not, that's not, we're not going to learn much from that. And yet we do. I mean, sometimes that's all we can manage, just put up with it. But really, we want to look to this quality of willingness to experience what's happening. Even when it's unpleasant. I know that's hard. When it's pleasant, we don't have to work to be willing. We like it. We're we're willing. No problem. Now, I want to make a distinction between willful and willing. A lot of us do much in our life willfully because we get this ambition and we get the drive and we just will it to happen. Well, meditation doesn't work that way very well. You can willfully practice meditation and make a mess. Insight practice only works when it's willing rather than willful. Meaning, are you willing? Just ask yourself, am I willing to experience this fully? And often the time is often the answer is tentative, right? Because it's unpleasant. Now, is there anybody that didn't experience unpleasantness today? Unpleasantness in the body, unpleasantness in the heart, you know, difficult emotions or unpleasant emotions, or in the mind, thoughts that just kind of bother you, stress you out, make you fearful? No. We all, we all experienced unpleasantness today, a lot of it, Right? And every day, every day, we experience a lot of unpleasantness. Why do we still fear it? I mean, isn't that a good question? It's like, we've all experienced so much (coughs) unpleasantness already. Why are we afraid of it? We're still here. We still get the chance to wake up to a new day every day. No matter how much unpleasantness you've experienced, it's like the next moment is wonderful. I mean, the mind is ready for any surprise, right? All that unpleasantness you've experienced hasn't damaged the mind one bit. Think about it. It's like, and yet, we're terrified of pain. We're terrified of unpleasantness. We're terrified of, you know, being upset and difficult emotions and you know, sadness and fear and jealousy and stress and anger and rage. Well, of course, I mean, we don't want to act these things out. If we act them out, we're really going to suffer, and others too. But even to experience them in the quietness of our own mind, or I should say in the raging storm of our own mind. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, this is really where the rubber hits the road in practice. Are we willing to experience these things? Are we willing to feel these experiences? There's a difference between experiencing something and feeling it. I don't know what the difference is, but I, 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 I get it. You know, We've all experienced a lot and we haven't felt it. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah, we've experienced a lot of stuff that we haven't really felt very carefully, very deeply. 
very intimately. This practice asks us to feel, not just experience, but to feel it. Because when you feel it, then you can work through it. You can change your view and your misunderstanding about it. That's the practice. This is what we're doing here. Working through these fear, this fear and uh, avoidance and denial and wanting to escape from experiences of life. And that's why we have to be gentle. We have to be gentle with ourselves. You know, you can't you can't force it on yourself. You can't force it on anyone else. And to just kind of go into it with this real, you know, kind of spiritual warrior, grim willfulness, you're going to miss the whole point. And so it's really the one who can really look at their own mind, the resistance, the stiffness in the mind, the fear in their own mind, and just soothe that resistance. It's kind of self-soothe ourselves, kind of allowing ourselves to just drop into these experiences. And there's no there's no other there's no way around it. You know, we have to do this for ourselves. And to the extent that we do it for ourselves, it's a benefit to everyone else that we share life with. As we pay attention to our moment-to-moment experience, as the different objects of nature come into view, the mind, the body, the environment, all the sense doors as they come into view, we will inevitably see what we like and what we don't like, what is pleasant, what is unpleasant what we prefer and what we don't prefer. The mind and awareness knows each of them equally. The mind doesn't make a distinction between, oh, this is pleasant. I mean, the the knowing mind, the awareness mind, doesn't make a distinction between this is pleasant and this is unpleasant. It experiences unpleasant just as easily and quickly as it experiences pleasant. It's we, our preferences with our wrong understanding, our wrong view, that get in there and muck it up. <coughs> oh, this unpleasant one? <coughs> I don't like this one. So then we start suffering. The mind knows it just as cleanly as it knows the pleasant one. But in our limitation of mind, or our wrong understanding, really, we pick and choose and prefer the pleasant over the unpleasant. And this is how we create our own suffering, rather than free the mind from suffering. As we learn to willingly observe, with interest, everything that comes into view, we gather knowledge, we gather data, really, about this thing called my life, and we organize it in, in some way of knowing and understanding. And when we see that we suffer, if, we, if we're paying careful attention, we will, we will... The mind, it's not we, we don't know how to do it. The mind knows how to do it, though. The mind will move into alignment with the way things are in order to not suffer. We can't force it we can't make it happen. We can't predict when it's going to happen. But if we pay careful attention, you will see that what initially appears as unpleasant and suffering and just intolerable and unacceptable, if you can steady your attention and observe it with interest, the mind will arrive at a way of understanding it where you stop suffering. I know. It's kind of peculiar, isn't it? Um, I, I know you've all seen it. But I, I, recently I had this experience. I promised I wouldn't talk about this, but I will. Uh, I recovered some uh, 
behavior of my past that was just absolutely shameful. Just terrible. I mean, it's just, as we all do. We do things out of carelessness, out of ignorance, out of, you know, just reactivity that, you know, at the time we can fully justify, I was right, okay. But, you know, in the quietness of just seeing things scroll through the mind, when it comes up for review, you see, oh my God, that was, that was not okay. That was shameful. Well, it really came up really vividly. And for 24, 36 hours, I was just totally caught in this view that this was shameful and I was a shameful person. Totally locked into this. And I I didn't have anything to distract me. I didn't have anything I had to do. I, I didn't have to meet anybody. I didn't have any... I didn't try to distract myself. I was just... Well, it, it seemed like I was wallowing in shame, really. But, you know, the mind has a way of finding the end of suffering. And after, you know, a day and a day and a half, I arrived at some understanding. And, and it, it's not particularly insightful, but it was my understanding. You know what? I did it. And I realized, and that, that was the understanding. I did that. You know, I had been resisting that experience for a day and a half. Mm-hmm. I hadn't really accepted the fact as it occurred. I thought I was. I was with it. I was. I was noticing it. I was with it. I was feeling it. But I was resist. I was not accepting it. As soon as I accepted it, it's like that shame gone. It's like this gone, totally gone. Then I felt vulnerable. I felt so kind of like, oh my God, I was just like, not ashamed, but now I was just vulnerable, like, oh, just quivering like a raw nerve, just susceptible to anybody's views and opinions, whatever. Another 24, 36 hours of that. <laughs> it was just like, it was just like torture, you know? And it was like, I couldn't fix it. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't get rid of it. I didn't distract myself. I know enough to watch watch it. I just watched it. I went for my walk. I went to my yoga lessons. I went for a bike ride. Still, mind was just churning away. Vulnerable, vulnerable. <laughs> it's like quivering vulnerability. Something happened after, you know, day and a half. Just like, okay. It's okay to be vulnerable. I mean... It's such a simple understanding, but as long as you're resisting it, you don't get it. As soon as you recognize, it's okay, this is the way it is. It's okay. Okay. Now I was vulnerable. Now, as soon as I was done being vulnerable, because I, well, I accepted it, then I felt unforgivable. (laughs) Boy, when you feel, when you see that you've done something that is unforgivable, that the people you've done it to, the person you've done it to, ha- will forever be wary of you. Forever, they'll never forget. They'll be wary of you because you can do that. That is shameful, and you just feel like you can't you can't forgive yourself for it. The other person they forgive you easy. It's easy to forgive other people what they do to you. It's really hard to forgive yourself. So, another day and a half. <laughs> Just unforgiv- unforgivable. It was torture. You know, and at some point, some understanding arrived of like, you know what? Okay. It's unforgivable. Well, life goes on. And, you know, it. the mind has so many resistances so much fear so much pushback to the way things are that's why we really need to cultivate this this question am i willing to feel this and accept it really fully 
not to, not debating with it, not negotiating with it, not trying to cajole it, not trying to spin it dharmically. You know, I could have spun any of those experiences dharmically. You know, practice forgiveness, practice loving kindness, blame the other person. Well, you're skillful. <laughs> There's all kinds of things, dharmically and undharmically. You know, but you're still entangled. But to work something through, as Mark Epstein said, is to change your view. It's not because you say, okay, I want to have a different understanding of this. It's like you stay with it until the mind changes by itself. It happens. That's, that's how this process works. It just works. When you pay attention and you're suffering and you keep paying attention, the mind will find the way to stop suffering. You can't find the way to stop suffering. Anything you do is willful and that will keep the, you know, you'll still be hanging on to or pushing away the unpleasant feeling, the unpleasant emotion. But if you just observe it over and over and over again, as long as it's there, keep observing it, the mind will find a way to understand it in a way that you don't suffer. It's hard to, it's hard to trust that. It's hard to trust that process. You know, until we try it for ourselves. We try it for ourselves and we see, even with little things, you know, whether it's knee pain or anything else, we just try it with the simple things. And then when you get to the big things, you know, there'll be enough faith, there'll be enough confidence, there'll be enough uh, experience, confirmed experience, that this is the way to deal with suffering. And this is how we overcome all of our doubt. Can I do this? The doubt about the practice, the doubt about the path, the doubt about the results. Just step, step at a time with, with little sufferings leading to bigger suffering. And then we know, you know, the way things are, this is the way, this is what the Buddha said. If you understand the way things are, really, the way things have come to be and how they've come to be, you can stop suffering. That's what we're doing here. I don't, make it, I don't mean to make it sound so like, oh my God, you know, it is that way, but it's <laughs> not all the time. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> you know, uh, last spring there was a, a woman here on retreat. Uh, from Seattle, and she was quite new to practice, actually, but she really got into this kind of practice of just stepping back and seeing with awareness what's going on, not being caught up in it. So when I was in Seattle uh, recently, she she was in a group that I was uh, teaching, and she, she just said what her experience was. She said, you know, I was standing on the street the other day, and I just had this swirling mass of emotional dramas going on in her life. It just was like so upsetting and so disruptive. And she said, quite spontaneously, this practice kicked in, and she just found herself just stepping back and being aware that that's what's going on. Mm. And it's like, that's what's going on, and she was not in it. It wasn't happening to her. And it's like the awareness of something is very different than being in it. You know, when you're angry or when you're thinking about your anger is very different than when you're aware of anger or when you're fearful, when you're afraid, or when you're thinking about what's making you afraid and when you're aware of fear, very different experiences. So what we're learning here is how to step back to kind of Step out of the experience. We're not denying it. We're not avoiding it. We're not giving it. We're changing our view of it. Rather than, I'm fearful, we can see, oh, fear has arisen in the mind. Subtle shift. Big shift in understanding. And this is what we're cultivating in practice here. Just learning to step back from experience to be aware of it rather than be entangled in it. And this is the key. This is the key to changing our view of what's going on in our heart, in our mind, in our life, to the view that leads to the end of suffering. 
Step by step, this is what we're doing. So let's just sit quietly for a moment and let the words settle down. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.